Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, many years ago in a, in a former life, I worked for about 10 years as a professional parliamentarian. Uh, now you may say, what's that? Well, a parliamentarian, I worked with different organizations trying to help them make decisions together as organizations using parliamentary procedure. And you might still be saying, what's parliamentary procedure? You may not know the term, but you probably have seen this in action in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's when you're in a meeting and someone rises up and says, I move that we do this, and someone else says, I second the motion. And then the leader of the meeting, the presiding officer, or the moderator, the chairman, it might go by different names, uh, that person says, it's moved and seconded, we do this. Those in favor say aye, those opposed say no, the ayes have it, we will do that. That's a basic kind of parliamentary procedure. And I say basic because the rules are very extensive. Uh, the, the main book uh, that is supposed to guide how these meetings should be run is called Robert's Rules of Order, and it's about 700 pages worth of rules. And when I did this professionally, I knew every single rule in that book. And you say, oh, I get it. You were a professional legalist. Uh, your job was to enforce nitpicky, ticky-tack rules. But in fact, that, that wasn't really why I really was drawn to this, why I enjoyed this. I didn't think of myself as a professional legalist. Others may have thought that, and maybe that's a debatable point. Uh, but as a parliamentarian, my, my job, my goal, my desire was to really help organizations to work together. You see, what I came to understand, especially in learning all of those 700 pages of rules, was that the particular rules were not as important as the principles that underlay those rules, that undergirded those rules. Because often the rules would have a particular exception, and if you didn't understand the principle, the whole reason for a particular rule, you wouldn't understand when to follow the rule and when to follow the exception to the rule. So what I was always trying to do was to try to protect everyone in the organization as they tried to make decisions, to protect individuals, to protect those who had sort of minority opinion in the group, uh, those who had the majority opinion, absentees who couldn't come to a particular meeting, and really to try to balance all of these rights that everyone had together. What I tried to do as I worked with both the rules and the principles underneath the rules was to help organizations avoid two different errors. The first error I would encounter when I would see people who, who knew some of the rules, but they didn't understand the principles. And so they would apply the rule rather than the exception when it should have been the exception rather than the rule. They understood the rules, but because they didn't understand the principles, they would often misapply the rules. That was one error that I was trying to help people avoid. The second error were those who simply didn't know the rules or the principles. And every man did what was right in his own eyes in those meetings, and sometimes that would go okay for a while. 
But pretty quickly, people didn't realize the harm that they were inflicting upon their organization by the way they were trying to make these decisions together. And my job was to help both teach the rules as well as the principles behind those rules. Now, I think those two errors help to illustrate the kinds of errors that we frequently encounter in relationship to the Sabbath. Now, last week, we talked about the first kind of error, those who knew a lot about the rules of the Sabbath, but frequently misapplied the rules of the Sabbath when they didn't understand the principles underneath it. These are the people who, the Pharisees, who focused on the prohibitions of the Sabbath rather than the purpose of the Sabbath, the ceremony of the Sabbath rather than its substance, the restrictions that the Sabbath enjoined rather than enjoying and delighting in the access to God given to us on the Sabbath. But this week, we are going to consider really the second error. If we want to make progress in calling the Sabbath a delight, uh, which we are called to do in Isaiah 58, chapter 13, if we want to grow in our appreciation and love of the Lord and in delighting in the Lord as we delight in the Sabbath He has given us, what would that mean positively? You can't just get rid of everything and everyone does what's right in his own eyes. God has given us the law. God has given us the fourth commandment in particular to guide us on the Sabbath. So what would that mean? What would that look like if we're going to avoid both of those errors and enjoy the Sabbath as God has given to us? Well, our big idea that really gets at this application point is this. Do good on the Sabbath. Do good on the Sabbath. And it's drawn directly from our text. We're going to see really three uh, approaches to the Sabbath in this particular text. First, doing what is lawful doing what is lawful. That's one way of evaluating what we can and cannot do on the Sabbath, doing what is lawful. Second, doing what is good, doing what is good. This is what Jesus tells us to do. And then third, doing what is evil, doing what is evil on the Sabbath uh, in, in verse 14. So let's start with the approach of the Pharisees, which they are seeking to do what is lawful on the Sabbath, doing what is lawful in verses 9 and 10. But as we get into this, it's important to remember the context of where we are. At the end of chapter 11 of of, of Matthew, in Matthew 28 through 30, Jesus gave us a promise. He said, I will give you rest. That was the promise. Well, then in the passage we looked at last week in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Jesus gave us a doctrine, a teaching of how that promise is going to come to us. And Jesus declared, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we have a promise that Jesus says that he will give us rest. We have the doctrine of how this rest is going to come to us through Jesus, the the Son of Man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in the passage we're looking at today, we're looking at a particular application. How do we apply this particular teaching of the Sabbath? How do we find this rest that Jesus offers us on on the Sabbath? And the test case comes in the form of a man who has a withered hand in verse 10. In verse 9, Jesus goes on from there and entered their synagogue. And verse 10, we read, a man was there with a withered hand. Now, this idea of a man with a withered hand is is very important. First of all, the question is going to be that Jesus needs to heal someone. And we're going to see that the particular issue he's dealing with is going to be important for framing how it is that we do good on the Sabbath. But the idea that, that the particular issue this man was suffering from was that he had a withered hand is very important in the Gospel of Matthew. Because later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to come across a fig tree. And this fig tree wasn't in season, and so it had lots of leaves but no fruit. 
And as Jesus looks at this fig tree, he suddenly declares, may you bear no fruit ever again. And what happens is at that point, that fig tree withers. It becomes withered. And it's the same word, it's a different form of the word, but it's the same word in both places. Now, we have to ask, why is Jesus later on going to wither the fig tree? Well, that fig tree was a picture, it was a symbol of the fruitlessness of Israel. God, in the whole Old Testament, calls his people to be a fruitful nation, to bear fruit for him spiritually in their worship, in the good deeds that they were supposed to do, in the light that they were supposed to be among all the nations. And God looked at his people, and they are not a fruitful tree, a fruitful vine. They are a withered stump. They are a withered, dried-out branch that bears no fruit. And when Jesus withers the tree, it's a symbol of all of God's judgment upon his fruitless people, Israel. Well, the same thing is true here. Spiritually speaking, the Israelites had the Sabbath still, but it was a withered, shriveled-up, dried-out, spiritually barren, spiritually fruitless kind of a Sabbath. It was not the Sabbath that God had intended for His people. And so the particular issue that this man brings is a symbol of the entire status and state of the Sabbath in Israel at the time. When Jesus comes across this man with a withered hand, the disciples asked Him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, this should draw our memories back to verse 2 of chapter 12, uh, when Jesus was giving us the teaching, the doctrine of the Sabbath. There the Pharisees had criticized Jesus' disciples, who were plucking heads of grain in a field, uh, by saying, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had rebuked them, saying, if, if you understood, verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You are condemning my disciples who are guiltless. They've done nothing wrong here. They have not violated the Sabbath. They have violated what you think the Sabbath is, but your Sabbath is a shriveled up, withered, unhealthy kind of a Sabbath. And if you understood the real purpose of mercy for the Sabbath, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So the Pharisees have not yet learned to ask whether it is merciful. They're still leaning on their old question, is it lawful? And this brings us to an interesting question of what did the Pharisees, what did the rabbis teach about what was and what was not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, actually, the Pharisees believed that you could act to save a life on the Sabbath. If you look at the rabbinical writings, the, the rabbis taught that you could save a life. Even if you had to work, you could save a life on the Sabbath. And in fact, they were very generous. Even if you were in doubt about whether someone's condition might be life-threatening, you could act in that particular case. You didn't have to wait for the person to die to decide that you then could actually lawfully work to save their life. You could do it, and that would be lawful on the Sabbath. The question then for them was whether something had to happen. This is where the boundary was. If, you, if there was something that had to happen to save that person's life, or if you thought there might be something that needs to happen to save that person's life, you were permitted to act on that day. But if there wasn't anything life-threatening in the moment, you weren't permitted to act. It was not lawful to act in that case on the Sabbath. The Pharisees then draw the line there, but what Jesus is going to show is that question of whether or not something is or is not lawful, is or is not life-threatening, is not the only question that should be asked. 
That's what they're doing. That's their approach to the Sabbath, doing what is lawful on the Sabbath, but that's not going to be Jesus' approach. But before we leave the Pharisees, notice that Matthew gives us a window, an inspired insight into their motives. We read that they ask this so that they might accuse him. Matthew is telling us that they are not having an engaging conversation. They are not intellectually curious. They're collecting ammunition against Jesus. Now, what we are seeing here is an application of nitpicky, ticky-tack rules without understanding the principle behind those rules. What Jesus is going to show is this is not the case when the standard rule should be observed. This is a case when the exception to the rule should be observed. But because they don't understand the principle behind the rule, they are employing and applying the rule rather than the exception at the wrong time. And what we are seeing here is that legalism never arises from a love simply of keeping the rules. That's not what the Pharisees are doing here. They are not asking Jesus this question because they love the rules so much. They're asking this because they want to accuse him. What that's illustrating to us is that legalists never try to keep the rules for the sake of the purity of the rules. Rather, the Pharisees desire to be the gatekeepers to the exceptions. Anyone who has rules recognizes that there will be exceptions to those rules. The question is always, who is the gatekeeper of exceptions to those rules? Even the Pharisees uh, would recognize that there's an exception if you had to save a life. That's when you can act. That, they wanted to be, though, the gatekeeper of the rules. They didn't want Jesus to make up his own exceptions to the rules, even though he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you go back to my parliamentarian days, um, uh, I often would encounter people who very clearly were acting very self-interestedly. They wanted something to happen in the meeting, and so they would offer a very uh, learned, very um, um, scholarly answer, trying to apply the rules to their particular situation. They would say, well, because of this rule and this rule, we have to do this. And, and, and my job was to sort of be there and say, well, yeah, you're actually missing the whole point of that, and if you do that, you're going to abuse your fellow members in that way. They were using highly technical justifications to try to be the ones who would be the gatekeepers of the exceptions where they could get their rays instead of following the principles that should be in play. But you see this all over the place. We see scandals all the time between leaders and politicians who are urging particular rules to be followed, and then it comes out and it's a huge scandal where they themselves were breaking and violating those rules. The principle of, well, there should be rules for thee, but not for me is at place in that case. But you might have also noticed this if you ever encounter a bureaucrat. You go to the DMV or something and, and understand those people can bury you in a mountain of paperwork. Oh, I'm sorry, you need to resubmit this form. Oh, I'm sorry, it needs to be in triplicate. Oh, I'm sorry, you're also going to need this addendum to that form. And Well, you're going to have to go back and that requires a 30-day waiting period and on and on and on. But have you ever been in one of these situations where if someone wants to show you how to navigate through the world, how this works, they sort of lean across the desk and they say, okay, here's how you need to do what you're trying to do. You need to go over there, you need to get that form, you need to talk to that person, tell them I sent you. They then are the gatekeepers to navigate you through the labyrinth of the rules, but that's the way that they want to keep it very often. There are always exceptions to the rules. The question that it's going to come down to in this story and in our hearts is who controls these exceptions? Is it God in the law that he has given us, which is for our good? 
Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Or is it going to be us as we use these rules, these restrictions and prohibitions to bend people to our will instead? The Pharisees are focused on the restrictions, the prohibitions. So in their mind, what is merciful, what is healing, is not lawful on that day if it's not required. But Jesus is now going to reframe the question to show us how we should look at the Sabbath. And this brings us to the second approach to the Sabbath, doing what is good on the Sabbath in verses 11 through 13. Jesus responds to them with a question. He says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, when it says a sheep here, it's, it's actually more like one sheep. There's a way of just simply saying uh, a certain sheep, uh, a sheep out there. Uh, but here Jesus specifically says a sheep, the one who has a sheep. And there's some debate on what this might mean. Uh, Jesus might be talking about a situation where someone has only one sheep. And that sheep, which represents the entirety of this man's wealth, falls into the pit. Which one of you then would not go out because he loved this one sheep so much to rescue that sheep? But notice then that the example Jesus gives of this sheep falling into a pit. The sheep isn't being chased by a wolf. The sheep isn't bleeding in some way, in a life-threatening sort of a way. So there's a real life-threatening danger. He's minimizing not the importance of rescuing the sheep on this day. He's actually showing how unimportant it is to act at that particular moment. It's very likely then, I, people disagree, but I think it's, it's better to see this as talking about one sheep among many. Think about Jesus telling the parable of the man who leaves behind the 99 sheep to go pursue the one. It's that kind of an idea. If you have 99 other sheep and one of those falls into a pit, not life-threatening, the sheep might bleat and moan a little bit and might want to get out of this. It might be unpleasant and frightening for the sheep, but the sheep's going to be just fine. There's nothing threatening the sheep. Who among us wouldn't still go to pull that sheep out? Even in that low of a situation, which of us wouldn't extend mercy to the sheep? What Jesus is doing is arguing from a minor situation to a major situation. And so he says in the next verse, he says, well, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? If you would help this one sheep who's fallen into a pit and that's it on the Sabbath, why wouldn't you help a man who is of much more value than a single sheep? And from this, Jesus draws a conclusion. This is the principle. This is the big idea. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, notice what Jesus is doing. One, one commentator, Hagner, really puts this well. He says, Jesus is challenging not the Sabbath law itself, but the interpretation of the law. He is showing that the way they understand the rules is that they don't actually understand the principle of the rule. The way they're framing their approach to the rule is making them to misunderstand when the rules should be followed and when the exception to the rule should be followed. Everyone recognizes there's exceptions. The question is, how do you judge which exceptions to apply on the Sabbath? Jesus is not saying you don't have to worry about the Sabbath any longer. What he is rather saying is that you have wrongly interpreted and applied this law which is still valid they're still falling into that first error where they don't want to do anything. But what Jesus is doing is clarifying the principle. 
where he helps us to avoid on the other side of things, the second error where we don't know the rules or the principle. Jesus is saying we still need to think about what the Sabbath is, but the question is not to do or not to do. That is the question. The question is rather, should we do good or should we not do good? And when you frame it that way, then everything comes into focus. Last time, Jesus gave us the principle of mercy and said, if you understood the importance of mercy, everything would come into focus. Now Jesus is sort of zooming out and giving us an even more broad and more general principle. The Sabbath is given that we might do good on the Sabbath. Now by this, Jesus is implicitly accusing the Pharisees for then justifying the doing of evil on the Sabbath. If it's good to heal this man, then by contrast, if the Pharisees are standing in the way of healing this man, they are condoning the doing of evil. What Jesus does then is to add insult to the Pharisees' injury. Notice in verse 13, Then he said to the man, said to the man, stretch out your hand. If what was unlawful in the Pharisees' mind was to do work on the Sabbath, notice how Jesus does no work. It was not unlawful to speak on the Sabbath. You could speak on the Sabbath. And so Jesus speaks on the Sabbath, even by his own definition, even by their own definition, he has not broken their law. He has not done what is unlawful. Jesus is entirely free of blame. Our Lord is so genius in the way that he works through this. And we read then the results. Jesus isn't showing off. Jesus is healing this man. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Remember that shriveled form of Sabbath keeping. Jesus is stretching it out just like the hand to expand the way they looked at the Sabbath, to give them a, a full, vibrant, living, active, healthy kind of approach to the Sabbath. Because understanding the right principle, understanding when to take the rule and when to take the exception makes all the difference. Let me illustrate this in another way. Um, I've been a pastor for about 12 years now. 10 years ago, uh, I actually came very close to quitting pastoring a particular church, but it's probably not for the reasons you might wonder about or think about. Uh, at the time, I was uh, a bivocational pastor. I, I worked full-time uh, for a startup company, took a lot of energy and effort working at that company. I was also an assistant pastor at a PCA church uh, that worshiped in the evenings, and then along the, the line came a church which worshiped in the mornings, and they needed an interim pastor, and so I agreed to serve as this church's interim pastor. So full-time job, pastoring at two different churches, preaching every week at this particular church uh, where, where, I, where I was called to serve as the interim pastor. And, and I was young, and I was energetic, and I was hungry to do ministry, and so I took it. But over the course of time, suddenly I lost all energy. It needed so much energy day after day after day as I had to do the things that I needed to do. It required absolute focus, and I just had no energy at all. I was tired all the time. I remember talking to my wife and saying, I don't, I don't want to quit, but I don't know how I can go on. I don't know how I can sustain this. I have no energy to do the things that I'm supposed to be doing in my job, much less uh, to pastor both of these churches. But then one day in this schedule, I went to give blood. I was scheduled to give blood uh, to the Lincoln Community Blood Bank. And I went to give blood that day. And if you know how that works, they prick your finger to check some certain things, uh, particularly to check your iron levels. And whatever they're measuring, my iron level was supposed to be at a 13. And I had a 9. Um, I was woefully anemic. I didn't know what the issue was, but then I discovered it. I was officially anemic. 
Now, here's what happened, and I I feel like a fool telling you this, but it won't be the first or the last time, so here we go. Um, I had been trying to eat um, healthier. Um, Not the first time, again, not the last time. Uh, But I decided that the way to eat healthier was I was going to cut out meat from my diet. It was a brilliant strategy. I cut out meat not understanding the principles of nutrition, not understanding how much iron was contained in meat. And rather than replacing it with iron-rich food, people do this. They cut out meat, but, but they're not foolish like I was. They replaced it with things like dark green leafy vegetables, and I don't know, I was eating bread or something thinking that it was more healthy. I was cutting out things that I thought were, was unhealthy, but I didn't understand the principle well enough to understand you better have iron in your diet, and you better replace it, not just take out the bad, but you have to replace it with something good. Otherwise, you are going to end up anemic. You are going to end up, just like in this story, with a withered, anemic lifestyle, a withered, anemic energy, just as they were experiencing a withered, anemic spirituality. It's not enough just to rest from certain activities on the Sabbath. Jesus is telling us that positively, we have to fill our day with doing good on the Sabbath. And that's the key shift that Jesus is leading us from. The question is not just may I or may I not do a certain thing. Do I need to cut something out? The question is, what am I supposed to fill up this whole day with? And Jesus says, do good on the Sabbath. In part, what Jesus is doing is teaching us what to do, but in part, Jesus' example is also giving us a marked contrast against the Pharisees. You see, at the beginning, we talked about the Pharisees' approach to the Sabbath was, we may only do what is lawful. May I or may I not do this? But now we see that ultimately what that legalistic approach eventually becomes, when every man just does what is right in his own eyes on the Sabbath, what that eventually comes is an approach of doing evil on the Sabbath. And that's our third point, doing what is evil on the Sabbath in verse 14. We read that after Jesus, again, without even breaking the law according to their standards, just speaking a word, We read that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. One commentator, Lenski, writes this. He says, to heal on the Sabbath, well, that's a mortal crime, but to plot murder, well, that's a perfectly lawful act. They are getting the Sabbath completely turned upside down. The Pharisees were only opposed to doing good. They not only opposed to doing good, they willingly did evil in plotting Jesus' destruction. Now, this is the nature of legalistic hypocrisy. Legalistic hypocrisy always attacks perceived shortcomings in external minor forms. But at the same time, uh, hypocrisy, legalistic hypocrisy, then ignores outright failure in major areas of spiritual substance. Very often when we think about legalism, we are thinking that the legalists, the rule keepers, really have a higher appreciation from the rules. But if you remember back when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was very clear that legalism is not a higher appreciation for the rules. It is actually a lower appreciation for the rules. In Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus insists, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill every dot, every iota of the law, absolutely every one. And then he talks about legalism. And he says this in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, 
whoever relaxes. Not whoever lifts up higher, but whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they were over-righteous. The problem was that they were significantly, woefully uh, under-righteous. And we see a perfect example of that here. Jesus says, should we do good on the Sabbath? They respond by trying to murder him. In these two passages then, the one we looked at last week and this week, Jesus is really warning us against those two errors I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. The one is to focus so much on the restrictions, so much on the rules, that we forget the purpose, we forget the principle, we forget that we are given the delight of access to God on the Sabbath in a way that we do not have on the other six days of a week. God has set apart this day as holy. But the second error is to know so little about the Sabbath that we don't know what to replace. We know maybe some things that we should remove from the Sabbath, but we don't know what to replace it with. We fail to do good on the Sabbath, and as a result, we become spiritually anemic and withered. Our application, then, of really this whole section is this. It's our big idea. Do good on the Sabbath. Do good on the Sabbath. You see, God gave the Sabbath law as a part of His abiding moral law in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment still applies today although we worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. We worship the Lord on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh day of the week as they did in the Old Covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because the fourth commandment, the reason for this, is what it commands us is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It says the abiding principle of the Sabbath is that we should set apart one day in seven as holy to the Lord. But what the Sabbath law goes on is if you continue to read the, the fourth commandment is that under the old covenant, it identified the seventh day as a Sabbath to you. Remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the Sabbath day. But then the, the law says in the fourth commandment, the seventh day is a Sabbath day. It's not the Sabbath day. It was the day when Israel remembered and celebrated the Sabbath day. And they did that because on the seventh day of the week, after God had created the world and everything in it, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, in six days, God rested on the seventh day and blessed it and counted it and set it apart as holy. But what happened with the coming of Jesus into this world, the reason that Jesus is the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath, is that what Jesus came into the world is to do all that history up to that point had been leading up to. You see, Old Covenant Israel had to live their entire week looking forward to the Sabbath. Just as Old Covenant Israel was living in a ceremonial time where they were looking forward to the promised rest who was going to come. Until Jesus came into the world. The Lord of the Sabbath came into this world. And He lived a perfect life. He did not break the Sabbath law here. He corrected it. He restored it to life and vitality. stretched out the withered nature of the Sabbath. And he fulfilled absolutely every last bit of it so that when he went to the cross, our Lord went with a perfect resume of righteousness, having fulfilled every good deed at every point that he was supposed to do. And he did this for us. He lived the perfect life that we could not live so that when he went to the cross to die, 
He died the death of a cursed sinner, not for his own sin, but in our place for our sin, judged in our place. So that the Lord Jesus, when then on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, when he rose from the dead, what Jesus was doing was he was making all things new. He was instituting a new creation. So just as the Sabbath day was observed on the seventh day to commemorate the first creation, so now we remember and celebrate the Sabbath and keep it holy on the first day of the week as we commemorate the new creation that Jesus ushered in by his resurrection, which is the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. This is what our doctrinal standards state. The Westminster Confession of Faith 21, paragraph 7 says this, as it is the law of nature that in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding upon all men and all ages, God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Understand uh, in the liturgical calendar, we're entering into uh, what people remember as, as Holy Week. As if, if this is Palm Sunday, next week we're going to be gathered together celebrating Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Understand, this was the last week of the old order in the life of Jesus. And when Jesus was on the cross on the sixth day of the week, Friday... He declared from the cross, it is finished. All his works were finished. And then on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, Jesus, even when he was dead, kept Sabbath, resting in the grave until then he rose again on the first day of the week to usher in a new creation. This is still binding on us, but we have gospel news, not law burdens. How then shall we keep the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's day? Well, again, Jesus is framing a principle around trying to keep us from two different errors. He's trying to keep us from legalism, where we are always trying to focus on, should I do this? Should I do this? Is it lawful to do that? Jesus doesn't want us to think of so much about those questions, not the restrictions, but the access, the delight we have in God on this day. But the second error Jesus wants us to refrain from is from thinking that this day doesn't matter, doing whatever is right in our own eyes. What Jesus wants us to do is to engage spiritually with the Sabbath, to discern positively what would be good on this day. Again, last week we talked about pro or purpose rather than prohibitions, access, not restrictions. But it's important to remember on this day that we do prohibit and restrict certain things. It's just not because of legalism. It's not because of nitpicky, ticky-tack rules. Rather, we refrain from certain things in order to focus on the good. So what is good? Well, what the Scriptures lay out for us for the Sabbath day, on this day that God has called holy, on the day that God has called us to do mercy, is to give the entire day to these things. Again, our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 8, says this, This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, their own words, 
and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Necessity is when we meet to our, minister to our own needs. Mercy is when we minister to the needs of someone else. Whether or not that is a life-threatening need, if it's a need, Jesus says, do mercy on the Lord's day. The gospel then of the Sabbath is that God has commanded us to rest from worldly work and recreations. Not because we are doing something to earn something from His, but in Exodus chapter 1, the Lord says that this Sabbath shall be a sign that God is the one who sanctifies us. The Sabbath has also been that, always been that we rest from our works so that God may do His work in us. You see, it's good for us to work. It's good for us to enjoy worldly recreations. But it's good to rest from those things, not because rest is the point, but because rest is a means to an end of worshiping and showing mercy to one another on this day. God wants you to order your life so that when we come to the Lord's Day, week by week, you are free from distractions in order to enjoy Him. The question is not whether something is lawful then, but whether something is good. I want to give you an illustration that might help you to, to think through what would be good and what would not be good. I want you to imagine a married couple uh, with, let's say, lots of children who are getting ready to go out on a date. You know, they have lots of children. I mean, it, it, is a, it is a full-scale military operation kind of a thing to get out of the house. You have to make plans. You have to make reservations. Uh, you have to register for child care. Uh, you have to figure out all of these details. But then imagine a married couple who finally get away, finally get some time to be with one another, that then in the middle of dinner or whatever, the husband pulls out a laptop and starts catching up on some work. Well, I've got a busy week this week, hon. I've got a little bit of time here. I'm sure you'll understand if I catch up on a little bit of work here. Or imagine if the wife, you know, we're, we're next door. I'm just, just gets up and goes and, and goes shopping at a particular store. Now, is it wrong to work? No. Is it wrong to go shopping? No. But do you understand that the context makes that wrong? It's not about what's lawful and what's not. We don't have to sit down and write a constitutional document about what may or may not happen on a date. But in the context of that, we understand if this day that husband and wife have given to setting apart time with one another, they should take advantage of that. Well, our bridegroom, the bridegroom of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, summons you Lord's day by Lord's day into his presence. Not because he wants to burden you with things that you can't do, but because he wants you. He wants time where you are not distracted. He wants you. It doesn't mean there will never be a sheep that you need to get out of a pit. There would be things that I would interrupt a date with my wife to do if someone needed help. But the question you might ask is, is this important that I would stand up my wife to go do this? Is this important enough to stand up Jesus to go do this? Or is this something that we can set apart our, for this day to focus on Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We love that You have given us this day and that You have called us to call the Sabbath a delight and that by calling the Sabbath a delight, you teach us to delight in you. And so we pray that on this day, we would deeply, truly love and delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, 
who rose on the first day of the week, this day, so that we may begin our week not looking forward to rest, but recognizing that you have already provided it through Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's in his name we pray. Amen.